You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll find out how sleep is a more important health commodity than you may think. We found that later on in adults, a lack of sleep or shorter duration of sleep is likely to be associated prospectively as a potential cause mm-hmm. to a number of consequences also linked to obesity. Also this week, Bertrand Audouin from the International Aid Society gives us an update on where we are with the disease. What, what we're trying to advocate for is add a fourth pillar that would be a global strategy on cure. But before all that, I'm joined by Harriet Vickers, who's here with her pick from What's Online this week. Hi, Harriet. Hi, Duncan. So uh, what have you got for us? Uh, well, the first thing that caught my eye was an update on the, the killer cucumber story that's been uh, causing a big hoo-ha in the press. Um, it's previously reported that they thought it was uh, it was an E. coli which is causing an outbreak of, of diarrhoea and also a potentially lethal kidney failure. They've had quite a few deaths, 15 people have, have died from this and uh, initially Germany linked it back to, to cucumbers which they said had come from Spain but they've now found that that's not the case and the, uh, the Spanish authorities aren't very happy. I bet. So do they know where it has come from? They're still unsure. This came out yesterday, this news story, and... Um, no, they they just don't know. Well, they know that it's it's not from the not from the cucumbers. And I heard somewhere that uh, they think it may be a whole new strain of E. coli, one that they haven't seen before. Mm, possibly it's um, E. coli zero one zero four H four, which is uh, so similar effects to to a more common strain. But um, no, they're saying this one is is very unusual, and it's resulted in um, a high proportion of of life threatening cases of of hemolytic uremic syndrome. Um, which can result in kidney failure. And a third of the, the known victims have already been hospitalised. So, yeah, the, the sooner they get to the bottom of it, the better, really. Sure, and I'm sure we'll be staying on that in the future. Mm. So what else have you got for us? The, the second story I picked up was uh, another big one, another one that's been in the media a lot this week, about the, the group Life and how they've been asked to join a government advisory panel on sexual health. And a lot of people have been quite unhappy about this because... Life are very strongly anti-abortion and they also think that the, the morning after pill is a form of abortion. And the other side is that they, they want to teach abstinence as, as a form of sexual education, which um, people aren't, aren't too happy about. Sure, and evidence out of the state says isn't particularly effective yes, as well. Yes, not effective either. Wouldn't, wouldn't be my way to go. No, but. so what have we got on that? Well, Ed Davies, our career editor, has picked it up and he's, he's one of the unhappy ones. Not because they've been asked to, to join this panel. He thinks that in a big group, theirs might be a good perspective to have, but more because the way this has, has, has fired the, the debate around abstinence um, as, as being taught in sexual education. And he, he draws parallels with this in the way the, the abortion debate has been going for the last 40 years. And he says things aren't really as polarised as, as the way it's been portrayed. He's got a quote that I quite liked nobody's pro-abortion as if it's some kind of beneficent gain that we should all experience at least once in our lives. Nobody is against life as we can't wait for the next chance to abort. It's, it's, you know, it's not as extreme as this. And he's saying that the way the absence debate has been, has been fired up over the last week, it's, it's very pro or anti-absence and he thinks that's not the best way to go. Sure. Great. Well, thanks a lot for that. Thank you. Now it's time to sleep. Last week we heard about a potential link between sleep and BMI and body fat composition in children. 
The editorialist who wrote alongside that research paper is Francesco Capuccio from the University of Warwick, and he joins me on the phone now. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. You're welcome. In your editorial, you talk about this sort of change in sleep patterns that are going on in modern society. Could you expound on that slightly? Yes. Sleep keeps us busy for a third of our lives and has been since the early days of evolution. In very recent time, we have changed dramatically our pattern, which was originally regulated by the day-night cycle, so by the presence of light. Mm. Whereas perhaps in the last 100 and 150 years, we have dramatically changed sleep and wakefulness. Particularly in the last um, 60 to 70 years, the American population has lost on average about or in excess of two hours per night, from just over nine hours per night to just under seven hours per night. But if we look at the extremes, for instance, and we say how many people would sleep less than five hours per night, and we'll come back to this magic number later, uh, we find that in excess of 20% of the population, one in five, do regularly sleep less than five hours per night. And that might constitute a long-term problem in terms of ill health. Mm, Absolutely. And you talk about some of the links between ill health and lack of sleep. And it's not just the BMI stuff we were talking about before, is it? Yes. Obviously, the the BMI story in children is very um, important in highlighting what is becoming an epidemic. Um, We find that later on in adults, lack of sleep or shorter duration of sleep is likely to be associated prospectively as a potential cause Mm -hmm. to a number of consequences also linked to obesity. Type 2 diabetes, for instance, is far more common in people who sleep less than five hours per night. The development of high blood pressure and and the obvious consequences you can predict, like uh, incidence of stroke, incidence of coronary heart disease. And we find also that total mortality is indeed increased in people who regularly sleep less than five hours per night. In other words, it's more likely that you die prematurely. So that five hours is is quite an important cutoff, it seems. Yes, I think unlike uh, things like uh, cholesterol and blood pressure, where there is a really graded linear relationship with risk, for sleep we find uh, an atypical situation or a different situation where we have what we call a U-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. Uh, We identify a sort of margin between six and eight hours per night, uh, where there is no particular association with with long-term risks. But if we go below five with a threshold, um, we find an increased risk of of, of developing all these conditions I mentioned. Another change to to the sleep cycle that's gone on is um, siestas that used to be common throughout much of the world and I believe are, are sort of disappearing at the moment. Has the idea of having a, a nap in the afternoon, catching up on some extra sleep that way, um, has the disappearance of that made a difference to people's health? Yes, this is a very, very important issue. When we talk about duration of sleep, we tend to associate to one night sleep in a continuum. That uh, may not be the case where, um, when we go into more uh, subtle studies of the sleep structure, mm-hmm. we have different phases of sleep. We have some very, very a deep sleep or very consolidating phase of sleep and sometimes you can have fewer hours during the night but you can catch up with naps which in some countries in the past was called siesta was very structured i think we have lost that uh, even spain very recently has lost formally 
the, the structured siesta, which is part of their daily life. And this is a precious society and the speed with which their economy has to work mm-hmm. and progress. So that's the clear example. Nevertheless, napping is a very important mechanism to compensate for particularly the acute effects of sleeplessness. It's less clear at the moment whether these are, uh, they, they have any effect on long-term Ill, Ill, Ill health, which is really the aspect we are most interested in, uh, and whether any erosion of that commodity we have uh, may uh, constitute uh, a risk to our long-term health. And that is a very early stage of research, in fact. And epidemiology is starting providing this, but in terms of mechanisms, as you can imagine, to, to, to transform observational studies into randomized clinical trials, yes. long-term outcome, um, there's a long way to go. But nevertheless, I think it's a very, very important to create a picture of uh, contributing factors to the epidemic of centuries. Mm, absolutely. So it's, this is a, an emerging field, this research. And Indeed. Indeed it is, yes. So I suppose, you know, for our listeners who are quite possibly GPs or something, they may have been having patients presented to them with acute sleep problems, insomnia. But do you think they need to be much more aware of a chronic lack of sleep, a lack of sleep that their patients perhaps don't even realize is going on? Indeed, I think this is a very, very important issue of touching. And I think it would be important to highlight that uh, in general, in primary care, in their training, uh, acute sleep problems, as you call insomnia, uh, uh, are clearly studied and they're fully aware of what they mean. What is less known, as you highlight, is that even subtle changes in sleep patterns may be such that individuals may not report voluntarily to GPs could constitute a risk for their future health. And in fact, I'll give an example. Uh, we, we do accept now as a common practice when we consult with, with patients of all kinds to ask whether they smoke, mm-hmm. um, whether they take any exercise on a regular basis, whether they add salt to food. No one has ever constructed into this very simple screening um, how long they sleep on average and how well they do sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is important that at this stage we do not have an effective treatment. Even if you find that somebody sleeps less than they should, mm-hmm. what do you do with it? Maybe in the future we'll see GP-prescribed lions or something. Professor Carpuccio, thank you very much for talking to us today. Well, thank you very much. And Francesca's editorial can be found on bmj.com. Now, this month sees the 30th anniversary of the first diagnosed case of AIDS. Today, around 34 million people worldwide are living with the disease, though encouragingly, the UN estimates that infection rates have fallen by 25% in the last decade. Last week, Bertrand Audouin from the International AIDS Society came into the studio to talk to Rebecca Coombs, BMJ's features editor, about the progress and the pitfalls in the fight against the infection and where he hopes the future strategies may lie. Bertrand, you've been talking about new strategies for tackling HIV. Um, Some might say that we already have a global strategy, so perhaps we could talk about some of the the challenges that Mm -hmm. that remain here 30 years on. Well, we have a number of strategies on different topics. Um, 
I personally don't believe in one single global strategy mm -hmm. that would be efficient. Um, the, the issues we have to deal with in the, the HIV world uh, at, at the global level are many and, and very different one from one another. Um, the settings are different. The situation is different from one country to the next. The situation is different if you talk about basic science, social science, prevention, access to treatment. So we need a number of different mm -hmm. global strategies to address these different situations and issues uh, uh, at the local level, actually. Um, so this strategy that we are trying to, to bring together is a global scientific strategy on cure and that does not exist at the moment okay. we have a, a number of global strategies on prevention um, there is a global strategy on access to care and a global strategy on access to treatment and these are the three main pillars of the fight against mm -hmm. AIDS at the moment what what we're trying to advocate for is add a fourth pillar that would be a global strategy on cure and when we say a cure we mean we mean using uh, existing treatments to work on finding a cure to come up with a global scientific strategy or maybe global scientific strategies because there might be an, a, a number of, of different strategies that we would need to put together um, to work towards a cure really that could be a functional cure that would aim at sort of keeping the virus in the body and could be controlled by the, by the body immune system um, or working on a sterilizing cure that would allow us to get rid of the virus completely in the body and that's where we would need to work with the vaccine people, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. Right. We have enough scientific knowledge to know that it's the right time to invest in a global scientific strategy on mm -hmm. cure. Um, one of the issue is not to divert money from the first three pillars, but that's certainly an area that we need to work on if we want to be more efficient in fighting the, the, the epidemic and the virus in the coming years. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And perhaps we could talk a little bit then about the advances in the science uh, towards a cure. Yeah. Um, I think particularly in the last two years, yeah. um, there might have been some, some, some advances and some interesting trial results. Yeah. Where, where do you think the main strands of work are going to be in the, in the coming years? Well, um, in the last few years, we've been focusing mainly on basic science. Mm -hmm. and that's been an important work. We ended up with interesting results on uh, knowing more about the virus DNA, on knowing how we can keep the virus inside the, the, the reservoirs. Mm -hmm. um, and have a functional cure, as you say. Yes, yep. exactly. On the other hand, we had the first positive results on vaccine trials in, in the past years mm -hmm. with this trial that was... This is the one that was 31% effective. Yeah, yep. exactly. So, again, 31% effective is not enough. But the but significance of that is... Is that working on vaccines is useful. That <laughs> it know? can work in humans, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that if we proceed with these efforts, we could end up with... A, a sterilizing cure that would be efficient. Mm -hmm. The last studies we had on using treatment for prevention and on the effectiveness of treating early mm -hmm. um, that 
reduces the, 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 the risk of infecting other people are also very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and quite mixed as well, aren't they? I think there were some very positive results yes. on... Um, in, in men who have sex with men yep. with um, the uh, drug uh, Truvada. Yep. Um, I think with the results back in, uh, was it last year, wasn't it? November last, was last year. year. Yep. Yep. Although recently we've had some results um, with heterosexual couples that have been um, less exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that, what, what that means is that we need to work on it. You know, we, we need to explore that idea mm-hmm. of using treatment. Uh, as a uh, prevention tool mm-hmm. um, and on the uh, efficacy, uh, effectiveness and efficiency of treatment, uh, of early treatment in reducing the viral load and in possibly um, maintaining the, the virus in reservoirs only. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely one area that we need to I- invest on uh, if we n- want to work on a functional cure. So we have two two mm-hmm. ways forward there, functional I, cure and sterilizing cure that we need to bring together yeah. in a global strategy. Can, can we talk a little bit about the importance of a vaccine? Yeah. Um, presumably that for every person that um, is sent into remission with antiretroviral drugs, several other people have already acquired the, 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 the disease elsewhere in the world. And so we're losing that battle of keeping the numbers down. Yeah. Vaccines is a sort of magical world mm. that everyone understands and, and believes in. Mm. Um, at the same time, if we want to be realistic, we have to pursue many different strategies at the same mm-hmm. time because we're not sure that any single strategy will succeed. Mm-hmm. And if we want to uh, end the epidemic one day, which might be possible, but we don't know when and we don't know how, mm-hmm. um, then we need to develop different strategies to to be sure that we'll end up with the the, the right one at the end. So if we shift focus to China, that country has been opaque for so long when it came to statistics on HIV. How much do we now know about the situation in China? Not a lot. Mm If, if you go back a few, a few years ago, um, the number of HIV-positive people in China officially officially went from zero to one million from one day to the next. Okay. They had this problem in a, in a province in central China with a lot of people being contaminated um, by blood transfusion. Right, and okay. that, that yes. was made public at the international level. Right. And that's when China sort of changed its policy from having no one infected with HIV to having one million people infected with HIV. The reality is that I think no one knows how many people are Mm -hmm. infected with HIV in China. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you go to the main cities in in China, they have amazing programs on HIV. They do? Yeah, they do. They have amazing prevention programs, including Mm -hmm. programs with with MSM, with sex workers, Mm -hmm. um, with migrants Mm -hmm. um, in the southwest of China. Um, In some cities, they have needle exchange programs at the local level. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to to clinics or or public hospitals in China, in some of them, uh, people are being taken care of in in quite a good way. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you go to other places, to other cities, you just have nothing available. N- n- no prevention, mm-hmm. no access to care, no access to treatment. Is there any national strategy? I mean, you're saying that you 
there are there are examples of good work going on in in major cities. Yes. But is any of that coordinated by the government? I think that's the issue that mm. uh, at, at the local level and at the province. Uh, level, sometimes you have good strategies and good policies. Uh, if you go to the national and federal level of, of China, um, there's a gap between the strategy, mm -hmm. um, the theoretical strategy, mm -hmm. and what's being implemented on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, so they have to, to, to work on that and deal with that, really. Um, we're trying to advocate for that uh, with members of the society who are in China, um, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's obviously very hard. Mm -hmm. um, because as always, and not only in China, when you, you work on HIV, mm -hmm. you always end up having to deal with political issues and moral issues. Mm -hmm. And not everyone agrees no. with with what we think is useful and efficient. And I think there are some critics that say that too much emphasis is put on f funding pharmaceuticals as a, as a way of managing HIV and AIDS, mm -hmm. and that there is some concern that, that that's at the detriment of other sort of social change programs. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's a fair criticism? Yes, I think it is, actually. The whole point that we have to deal with at the moment is not diverting, diverting money from prevention to care, treatment, and cure, mm -hmm. but finding additional money uh, for treatment, care, and cure, mm -hmm. and keeping the money running to prevention programs. Quite easy to cut money from prevention programs, because it's something that can be done with almost no public awareness. Mm -hmm. um, what we're saying at the IAS is not that we need a different allocation of mm. the money that's available, but we need more money mm. to fund for new strategies and new programs mm. and not diverting money from prevention programs. And something we, we write about a lot at the BMJ is conflicts of interest. Mm. And I wonder what, what, what those issues are in your field, obviously working with lots of pharmaceutical companies and making yeah. sure that we're always getting a good deal at the end of the day, that yeah. uh, not spending more money than is actually necessary on on on, on getting drugs to areas that, that, that are most needed. Yeah. Well, we do work at the IES with all the main pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. um, again, we are trying to have as inclusive uh, a program and priorities as we can. Mm -hmm. We have to bring the pharmaceutical companies into a broader map, really, that includes generic drugs, includes policymakers. So there's always a tension there. Um, at the same time, I believe that all the main pharmaceutical companies know that if they want to meet their goals, they need to be more efficient in making their products available to the broader, broader population, even if that means not making as much money as they would like mm -hmm. on some parts of the market. Mm -hmm. So that's work in progress. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it's always work in progress. Yeah. I mean, it's been for, what, 20 years now, 25 years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it always is mm -hmm. work in progress in translating the scientific knowledge into products that will be available to people who need them at the best price mm -hmm. possible. And if you want to hear more about the potential setback in the provision of antiretrovirals in the developing world, you can hear more about that in an earlier podcast, Trade and Generics.
That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.